Book Five, Chapter Four of Clara Vaughan, Volume Three. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Sandra. Clara Vaughan, Volume Three, by R. D. Blackmore, Book Five, Chapter Four. Chapter 4 It must be owned that my evidence at present was very shadowy, yet to myself I seemed slow of hand for not having grasped it before. To the mind there was nothing conclusive, to the heart all was irresistible. I have not set down a quarter of the thoughts that now dawned upon me, and it would be a waste of time to recount them when actual proof is forthcoming and poor idols gave me small chance of thinking clearly in the turbulent flood of her questions. And are you quite sure, quite certain, Clara, darling, that I have a lawful father, one who is not ashamed of me, and was not ashamed of my mother? And why did he never come for me, and do you think he will love me? And is dear Conrad my own brother? I don't seem to understand half that you have told me. At length I knelt down and thanked God, rather late in the day, I must own, for his wonderful guidance to me. While doing so and remembering, as I always did then, my mother revealed in sudden light, I saw the justice of God's providence. Long as I had groped and groped, with red revenge my leading star, no breath of love or mercy cheering the abrupt steps of a fatalist, so long had he vouchsafed to send me check and warning, more than guidance. By loss of wealth and dearest friends, by blindness and desertion, and the crushing blow to maiden's pride when her heart is flung back in her face, by sad hours of watching and weeping over the bed of sickness, by the history of another's wrongs, worse than my own, and yet forgiven, by all these means, and perhaps no less by the growth of the mind and wider views of life, the spirit, once so indomitable, had learned to bow to its maker. Stooping thus it saw the path which stiff-necked pride could not descry. Not first and sole, as it would have been two years since, but side by side with softer thoughts, came the strong belief that now God had revealed to me the man who slew my father and what humiliation to all my boasted destiny. I had grasped the hand that did the deed, smiled to the eyes that glared upon it, laughed at the sallies of the mind that shaped it. Enough of this, ere it go too hard with Christian feeling. My bosom heaves, my throat swells, and my eyes flash as of old. Before I had time to resolve what next to do, for Isola would not let me think, we had another interruption. That girl had a most ill-regulated and illogical mind, and the fault was fundamental. If the lovely senior sophist had ever got her degree and worn the gown of a maiden of arts, it could only have come by favour after the manner of kissing. Her enthymems were quick enough, and a great deal too quick, I believe, but as for their reduction or eduction into syllogisms, we might as well expect her to make a telescope out of her boot tags. And now at once she expected, 
and would not give me room for a word that I should minutely detail in two sentences with marginal annotations and footnotes, queries, conjectures, and various readings, all incorporated into the text, everything that had ever, anywhere or by any means, befallen her genuine father. Not being Thucydidean enough to omit the keyword in a sentence and mash ten thoughts into one verb, I could not meet the emergency, and my dear cousin lost her patience, which was always a very small parcel. At any rate, Clara, tell me one thing clearly. Are you quite certain that Connie and I are not, not, not base-born, I said? Why be mawkish in Oscan English when Saxon is to be had? No, my darling, you are as lawful as I, your cousin Clara. We Vaughans are a passionate race, but we never make wrecks of women and scoundrels of ourselves. That we leave for Corsicans, and people brought up to lies. The sneer was most unjust and dreadfully unkind, but far too natural for me, so long pent in, to resist it. I saw that I had grieved my pet, so I begged her pardon and reviled myself, till all was right again. Then suddenly she leaped up and cried, with her hand upon her bounding heart. Every look and gesture must have been like her mother's, let me go now, Clara. What am I thinking of? Let me start at once. And you say my own father is very ill? He will die without seeing me. On with your things while I run to the cab stand. I have money enough for both. She wrenched at the door handle in her hurry, forgetting that I had locked it. Rich colour leaped into her cheeks, and her features and form seemed to dance, like a flickering flame with excitement. No wonder her mother had loved and been loved with such power of passion. Idols, take it easy or I won't let you go at all. I rather fancy we must have some evidence before my uncle owns a little chit picked up in London. He is a clever and cautious man and will expect something more convincing than your beautiful eyes and sweet breath. Do you expect, you impetuous jumper, that he will know you by instinct? Poor little thing, how her face fell, and how the roses faded out of it. That look of hers went to my heart, but I knew what the mother had died of, and feared lest her image and picture should perish in the same manner. So I said again, Did you suppose, my dear, that your father would know you by instinct? Well, perhaps I did, Clara, if I thought about it at all. I am sure I should know him so. At this moment, two heavy knocks, like a postman's, but not so quick, sounded through the house. I knew what they meant. One was Balaam, the other was Balak. Isola clung to me and turned pale. She thought it was someone pursuing her. I told her hastily whom I expected and sent her to Mrs. Shelfer's room. My heart beat high when with many a scrape and bow the worthy but not ornamental pair sidled heavily into the room. To my greetings they answered me never a word, but Balaam stood solemnly at the end of the little table and beckoned to his partner to fasten the door. This being done with some pantomime, which meant, by your leave, if you please, miss, the two men, who looked none the leaner for their arduous exertions, stood side by side before me. 
tired of this nonsense, I exclaimed impatiently. Be quick, if you please. What is it you have found out? Balaam winked at Balak, and receiving a ponderous nod, began to digest it leisurely. Have you brought me to London for nothing? What do you mean by all this mummery? I shall ring the bell in a moment and have you both shown out. Balaam's tongue revolved in his mouth, but burst not the bonds of speech, and he tried to look straight at both windows till my hand was on the bell-pull. Balak, I told you so. Law, how much better it be for you to take my advice than for me to take yourn, Balak said. Miss, as we come along, the young lady would be sure to know what is right, and turn up handsome afore she asked us nothing. Now, says I, that ain't the character of my experience. The women most always wants. Here, quick, how much do you want, before I know what you have to tell? Here a long interchange of signals took place, and even whispering behind a hat. Well, miss, I say ten, and that quite enough till you has time to judge. But Balak says nothing under twenty, considering all the beer, and some of it country brewers. Your advice is better than Balak's. I agree with you on that point, and I will take it in preference. Here are ten pounds. He looked rather taken aback, but could not well get out of it. Balak smiled grimly at him. If what you tell me proves really valuable, I will give you a cheque for another ninety ere long, and the residue hereafter, but not another farthing if you keep me in this suspense. Do I look likely to cheat people of your class? No, miss, we opes not, nor of any other class, I dare say. Still, there be so many rogues in the world. You have taken my money. Speak on. What they told me at wearisome length and with puzzling divergence, and quantities of self-praise need not occupy many lines. They had traced the jelly-courses, as they called Della Croce, from Somers Town to Lisson Grove, where they stayed but a very short time. Lepardo Della Croce, under some fictitious name, giving lessons in French, Spanish and Italian, at schools in Portland Town and St. John's Wood. But he only seemed to play with his work, though he never broke any engagement to which he really pledged himself. He was always reserved and silent, accepted no invitations, and gathered his real subsistence by night at chess clubs and billiard rooms, where his skill was unequalled. His only friends were Italian refugees, his only diversion the vivisection of animals. It must have been about this time that he saw the newspaper paragraph, and did what he did to me. Then he changed his name again and lived a while in Kensington. He had been in London years before, and seemed to know it well. Here a nobleman, whom he had taught some new device at billiards, took him up and introduced him to a higher class of pupils, and obtained him some back-door palace appointment. He dubbed himself Professor, and started as Dr. Ross. But still, he missed the excitement and change of his once adventurous life, and several times he broke loose and left his household for weeks and months together. Then the two lovely children whom all admired 
but none were allowed to notice, were attended wherever they went by a dark-browed Italian woman. Suddenly they all left Kensington and went to live at Ball's Pond, the reason being some threatened exposure of the professor's cat-skinning propensities. His love of vivisection had become the master passion, and he would gratify it at all hazards. There is, to some natures, a strange fascination in the horrible cruelties perpetrated under the name of science. Through its influence, he even relaxed his strict reserve a little, and formed the acquaintance of a gentleman connected with the college at Camden Town, to which suburb after a while he removed because he found it impossible to pursue his inhuman researches under his own roof comfortably. Here, by means of his new ally, who could not help admiring his infinitely superior skill, he was appointed lecturer at several schools for young ladies, where smatterings of science were dealt in. And now he was highly respected by people who did not know him, and idolised by young ladies, too clever to care for pet parsons. Of course he became conceited, for his nature was but a shallow one, and his cunning, though sharp and poisonous, had no solid barb at the end. So he sneered and grimaced and sniggered, and before an ignorant audience made learned men stammer and stutter, amazed at his bold assumptions, and too honest and large of mind to suspect them at short notice. But the skill of his hands was genuine, and his power of sight most wonderful. I have since been told, though I do not believe it possible, that he once withdrew and bottled nearly half the lungs of a dog, tubercular after distemper, while the poor sufferer still gasped on, and tried to lick his face. Oh, that I were a man! How can I hear such things and not swear? All animals except one hated him by instinct. The only one not sagacious enough to know him was his fellow man. Men, or at any rate women, thought him a handsome, lively, playful and brilliant being. And yet, upon the honour of a lady, I declare, let those who know nothing of honour despise it as an afterthought, that when he first entered my room in his graceful and elegant way, there ran through me such a shudder as first turns the leaves towards autumn, such a chill of the spinal marrow as makes the aura of epilepsy. Darling Judy hated him from every bristle of his body, not only through instinct, but for certain excellent reasons. The monster's most intimate friend was a gallant Polish patriot, who had sacrificed all for his country and lived here in dignified poverty. This gentleman and his wife could only afford one luxury, and that by denying themselves many a little comfort. They had the finest dog in London, one who had saved his master's life from the squat-nosed sons of the Tsar. This glorious fellow of Maltese family was the father of my Guidice, whom in his puppy days the Polish exile gave to Conrad and pretty girl Isola. Slavsky, now an ancient dog, had a wen behind his shoulder, which grew and grew until the professor could scarcely keep his hands from it. But he knew that any operation in so severe a case 
was nearly sure to kill a dog so old and weather-beaten. The owner, too, knew this, and would not have it meddled with. Lepardo della Croce swore at last that he would taste no food until he had traced the roots of that wen. Judy, then a pretty pup, gambled into the room and saw his poor papa, but I will not describe what a dog cannot even bear to think of. Poor Slovsky died that night, and the pole knocked down the surviving brute who shot him next day upon Hampstead Heath. However, the gentleman slowly recovered, but during his illness the frenzied wife overstepped the bounds of honour, according to their ideas. She took advantage of Cora in the absence of Lepardo, and learned some of his previous crimes by practising on the poor woman's superstition. Then she found, through the firm of Green, Vowler and Green, that my uncle was still alive, traced out the history of the atrocious deed, and wrote the letter which had brought me to London. Soon afterwards, when her husband recovered, she was sorry for what she had done, and opened her lips on the subject no more, at least in this country, which they forsook for America. In this brief epitome I have told, for the purpose of saving trouble, a great deal more than I learned at the time, a great deal more than Balaam and Balak would have found out in a twelve-month. But it makes no difference, for my conclusions and actions were just the same as they would have been if I had known all the above. And so you see, miss, was Balaam's peroration, we have had a downy cove to deal with for all his furious temper. Law, now, I never believe any bobby would have discovered him, but we as ways, miss, what with the carpets and the sofies, and always knowing the best pump at the bar, gentlemen of our profession as ways, that no peeler would ever dream of. And now, miss, the ink is on the table, and both of us wishes you joy. Didn't you say so, Ballock? If you only think we has earned that cheque for ninety pounds, and the rest, please God, when the gentlemen feel Jack Ketch. You shall have the money soon, if not now, for I believe you have deserved it. But I must trouble you first to write down briefly what you have told me, and to sign it in full. It is not for myself, I remember every word. It is for the satisfaction of a gentleman who cannot see you. Balaam and Balak looked very blank, and declared it would take them a week to write out half they had told me. This objection I soon removed, by offering to make an abstract of it, which I could do from memory, and then let them read and sign it. By this time they were both afflicted with thirst, which I sent them away to quench, while I drew up a rough deposition. But first I called darling idols, and told her that now I had evidence which would satisfy even a sceptical father. And surely, my pet, you yourself must have something, some relic, or token to help us. No, cousin Clara, I can't think of anything except this little charm, which has been round my neck for years, and which I have shown you before, but I fear it is not uncommon. He took it away from me once, but I managed to steal it back again. The charm was a piece of chalcedony, ground into some resemblance which I could not recognise then, and very highly polished. She said it had been her brother Conrad's, and he had given it to her, hearing which I ceased to examine it. 
Presently the bailiffs returned, in very high spirits indeed, and ready to sign almost anything. But I took good care to inform them that, however hard they had laboured, I had made the discovery before them, which they said was promiscuous and not to be thought nothing of. All the forms being quickly dispatched, I found a few minutes to think what was next to be done. It is too late in my journey for dalliance and embarrassment with the heavy luggage of motives and the band boxes of reflections when we are past the last station and flying to our terminus. Enough that I resolved to take poor little Isola home at once to the house at Vaughan St. Mary and the arms of her longing father, that he might see her before he died. I hoped he might live for years, but I feared he might die tomorrow. So hangs over everyone's mind that fatal third stroke of paralysis. Her own entreaties and coaxing told much upon my resolution. If none could resist her when happy, who could withstand her distress? So Balaam and Balak were ordered most strictly to watch that demon's abode, and at any risk give him in charge if he made attempt at departure. To ensure due vigilance, I reclaimed the ninety-pound cheque and gave one payable three days afterwards. They grumbled and did not like it, but in the course of all my rough usage, I had learned one great maxim, never trust beyond the length of a cork, any man who is slave to the bottle. End of Book 5, Chapter 4